Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you guys again. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Good to be with you. Looking forward to opening God's Word with you. Uh, last week, we began uh, a series studying through the books of First and Second Peter. And um, what we saw last week is that uh, Peter is writing to a group of Christians uh, who live in the Roman Empire. And they live kind of a, precisely in an area kind of around modern-day Turkey. And what's happening is that they are facing uh, suffering and they're facing trials because of their allegiance to Jesus. And their uh, citizenship had been transferred from a kingdom of this world to God's eternal kingdom. And their new citizenship brought with it a new allegiance to a new king. And their allegiance to Jesus as king, it was actually really changing their lives. And their society and their family and their friends, they didn't really like those changes that they were seeing in people. And what was happening is that these young believers, they were being treated as exiles in their own homes, in their own city, in their own country. They were being treated as foreigners, and even in the place that they're from. And Peter's words to them as he opens this letters, they were a reminder to these people that what you feel is actually true. You feel like exiles because you are exiles. This isn't your home. It's no longer your home. This is not where you live. And so what we saw is that Peter's words to them is that the hope that they needed in order to live as exiles was found in the electing grace of God. The hope that they needed, the hope that we need to live as citizens of God's kingdom, yet as uh, messengers, as his ambassadors here and now in the midst of this earthly kingdom, it comes from God's choosing, his electing, his grace towards us. What happens is that that truth produces in us a hope that is sure, a hope that is lasting, a hope that is confident, a hope that's unshakable, unmovable in the midst of any kind of circumstance. It produces in us a hope that's needed in order to stand firm, to live as citizens of God's kingdom, yet as exiles in this world. It's found in God's electing grace. That's it. So Peter began his letter with what we like to call, you've heard me talk about this before, he began his letter with the indicatives of the gospel. The indicatives of the gospel are the truths about who God is and about who we are, who we now are because of all that he's done. And indicatives are truths that do not change. An indicative is a truth that doesn't change. But Peter doesn't just stop at the indicatives. What we'll see in our passage this morning is that Peter goes on to outline the imperatives of the gospel. If the indicatives of the gospel are the things that are true, that do not change, then the imperatives then are the things that are, are our response to those truths. It's how we live in response to the truths. One uh, commentator says it this way, the indicatives of God's grace precede the imperatives of his commands. The indicatives of the gospel, what God has done for us, they always precede the imperatives, but they always lead to them. God's word is not just meant to be heard. It's meant to be heeded as well. It's meant to be responded to. It's meant to be lived in light of. One commentator writes it this way. He says, so after opening uh, his letter with this glorious doxology for the great work of God's mercy in Christ, Peter returns his attention to describing the appropriate response 
in the lives of those who have received God's grace. What I want for us to see this morning as we study this second half of chapter 1 in 1 Peter, what I want us to see is that Peter calls us to live out our new grace-given identity as obedient children of God by becoming like him, by becoming like our Heavenly Father. All of the exhortations that Peter is going to give, everything that you're going to see this morning, all of the ways he calls us to respond to God's grace, they're all based in God's character and in our relationship with him, our new standing with him as his kids, as his children. As God's children, we're called to an obedience that reflects the reality of this new birth that we have and the new family that we have. As obedient children, we're called to imitate the character of our Father. And so Peter's call to these Christians is the same as his call to us this morning. It's a, it's a call, it's an invitation to live out this new identity that we've given, this new grace-given identity as obedient children. We live that out by imitating our Father. And so Peter's call is a call to obedience, but it's a call to obedience that is in response to a new identity. And so as we study this morning, we're going to ask three questions. We're going to ask, why do we obey? We're going to ask, who we obey? And last week, we're going to ask, how do we obey? So why we obey, who we obey, and how we obey. So let's pray and read the passage And as we begin our study. We'll read the passage first. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 20, uh, verse 113 through 2-3. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. And as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as who, he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And since you Call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. Live out your time as foreigners here with reverent fear. For, when, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver as gold that you were redeemed from the empty ways of life handed down to you, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or without defect. And so he was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for your sake, so that through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so you have faith and hope are in God. So now that you've been purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have um, sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and all of the glory of this world is like flowers of the field and the grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. And like newborn Babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. God, we uh, are so grateful for your word that we might sit under uh, the teaching of your word this morning. God, we uh, need to hear the truths of this passage just as much as the original hearers of this letter did. And so, God, we just ask by your spirit you would, like, give us hearts and, and minds that are, can, can receive the truths that are there. 
God, and I just ask, like, I just feel like especially distracted this morning, and God, I just ask that you just, by your spirit, would just fill me so that I might be able to preach the truths of your good news about who you are and all that you've done and how we're called to respond to you, God. I just, like, there's no way I can do that without you. And so, God, we just long to uh, enjoy and treasure you as we sit in, under your word this morning, and we just trust that you long for that to happen as well. And so we ask that you'd cause that to come about for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. So, first thing I think Peter addresses in our passage, he answers the question, why we obey? What is our motivation towards obedience? And I want to point out three things that Peter highlights with regards to that. Number one, the passage begins with the word, therefore. So everything that's about to come is intrinsically intertwined with everything that he just said. You cannot separate them. The first thing that we studied last week leads to everything this week. Like we said last week, Peter started with the indicatives of the gospel. He started with the truths about who God was, about who they were as his adopted children, about the security of their hope, about God's grace being given to them, not merited or earned, about their new status as beloved children of his. He starts with the truth about them that cannot change. And he starts with that truth for a reason, because Peter knows He knows that the default mode of every human heart is to earn or to try to keep by our performance the things that we have, the relationships that we have. And so Peter doesn't start with their identity. He doesn't start with their actions. He doesn't start with the commands. Rather, he starts with their identity, and he starts reminding them about who they are. He starts reminding them about their status and their standing with God. He reminds them about their, that it's not about their performance. It never was about their performance. It's not about the amount of faith they had. It's not about the strength of faith they have. It's about the strength of the Savior who has saved them. What Peter is telling them, what he's, what he's proclaiming to them, he's saying that if you're going to obey If you're going to live as exiles who represent a different king in this world, you are going to need a motivation that is altogether different. You are going to need a motivation that simply cannot come from within you. You're going to need need gospel motivations, motivations that are immeasurably more sure and more lasting. You're going to need to know the good news about the gospel and God's electing grace. Otherwise, you're going to try to earn something that you have already been given, or you're going to try to uh, keep maintaining something that you cannot lose. And what will happen is that God, instead of being your good and loving father, he'll become your boss. Or even worse, he'll become an abusive or absent father to you. And so what you have to know before you try trying to obey any of God's commands is who he says you are. Peter is saying you need gospel motivations and you have them. You are loved by God because he chose to love you. You are adopted by him. You are given an immeasurably more valuable inheritance than you have. And it's by faith that God keeps you. And it's by faith he's keeping his inheritance for you. And you don't deserve any of it. But even more than all of the therefores, Peter goes on. Notice this in verse 14. He says, as obedient children. It doesn't say become obedient children. It says, 
as obedient children. You are already seen as God's obedient children if you have put your faith in Jesus on your behalf. But you say, I don't always obey. In fact, this morning, I did not obey well. It did not go great this weekend. And what I want to remind you is, uh, you are an obedient child. And you're saying, you didn't hear me. I don't actually obey all the time. And what I'm trying to tell you is, that's an indicative, not an imperative. The passage says, as obedient children. It says, you already are obedient children. You have a new identity that does not change because of your behavior. It's an identity that is based on Jesus' behavior, not on yours. Jesus was the perfectly obedient child that you and I were supposed to be. And God says because you're in Jesus, his perfect performance, the righteousness that was his reward for his life lived is credited to you. You're seen as an obedient child. And so Peter's command is not become obedient. He says, you already are seen as obedient. So act like it. You already are God's obedient children. So act like it. Don't turn back to all this other crap. Act like the children that you already are. You've been given a new identity, so live in light of it. Ephesians 4 verse 1 says, live, in, live worthy of the calling. It, that doesn't mean to live up to the calling. It means you've been given a calling you're not worthy of, so joyfully respond and live in light of that. Your identity leads to your doing, not the other way around. The gospel says that your identity leads to your doing, not the other way around. God's been teaching me a lot about this in the midst of potty training our three-year-old, which probably totally makes sense to everyone, right? But um, one of the things that God's been just doing in my heart, I feel like it, it, this has been, a, it's been rough over the past year trying to potty train her. But um, I think one of the things that I've kind of dangled in front of her as motivations is, Emma, you, you want to be a big girl, don't you? Big girls do not poop in their pants. So if you want to be a big girl, then stay clean and dry. Then you'll be a big girl, right? And God's really been challenging my heart on that in the past few weeks. And he's been inviting me to approach that differently. And so now every morning when we wake up and I go to get her dress, I say, Emma, I love you. You are daddy's big girl. You can stay clean and dry today. You can do it. I will help you. You are a big girl. And when she invariably messes up, I tell her the exact same thing again. I say, Emma, I love you. You are a big girl. You can do it. You have everything that you need. I will help you. So why do I tell her that? Because then maybe she'll believe she can do it and then go potty. No. That's not, besides, this is not like a potty training seminar, right? Also, it's not really helping that, right? I don't do it because, like, that's the way I'm going to get her to get potty trained. I do it because what I want to irrevocably ingrain into her heart is that her identity leads to her doing, not the other way around. I want her to know, no matter what happens, no matter how much poop is in her pants, I love that little girl, and I will always accept her, and I will always love her. 
And I want her to know that she is a big girl and she can do it. My first job as Emma's dad is to show her what God the Father is like. Because there are going to be way bigger struggles in her life than potty training, although it doesn't feel like that right now. There are going to be bigger struggles than that. And she's going to believe, need to believe that her performance does not affect her standing with God. And right now, when she's three, and I'm in the midst of potty training her, I'm beginning to lay the groundwork in her heart for that truth. So one day, she won't have to fight with unbelief all the time. So from when she is a little kid, she'll have an example of a dad who says, I love you no matter what happens. I'm showing you that in the midst of the everyday stuff of life because I want you to know what God as a good father is like for you. It's not about potty training at all. It's about planting the seeds of the gospel in her heart when she's little in the everyday stuff of life. And Peter is telling them, you have to obey, but you need to obey in light of something that is already true, not in light of something you're trying to become. See, when you obey because you are already seen as obedient, even though you're not, that fuels a longing in you to actually obey like guilt and shame could never motivate. And so Peter highlights the why of our obedience. He goes on to give one more reason. In verse 18, he says this. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to you from your ancestors. Instead, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, without defect. He says, you've been redeemed, you've been bought back, you've been set free. Peter stresses the costliness of the ransom that's there, and he's also stressing that it's God who paid the ransom. The word that's translated uh, redeemed here, in the Greco-Roman world, in the, in the culture that it's from, it referred to this idea of the, the mansumation of slaves. It's kind of like emancipation, but different. Let me explain. One commentator writes this way. He says, A slave would receive his or her freedom after depositing money in the temple of a god or a goddess, which would then be paid to the slave's owner with the thought that this god or goddess was buying the slave. And so the former slave would be free in the eyes of the former owner and in the eyes of society, but they would be considered as a slave to this deity. And the sum of money that, is, that was paid for this redemption, the, the Greek word there is called time, or the price of the redemption, the time or the price. And so Peter brings this all back around and he says, he spins it around in verse 18. He says, you weren't bought with a, a time, you weren't bought with a price of of silver or gold, something that can just perish and fade. With a play on words, he says, you were bought with the timeo, or the precious blood of Jesus himself. The price that was paid for your redemption, the price that was paid, was exponentially more costly than any silver or gold. It was the cost of God's life himself. And so the payment for your redemption was incredibly valuable, but so were the results. Because in the Greco-Roman world, you are now just a slave to this new God who had bought you. But in the gospel, you're not a slave. You're a child of God. The cost that Jesus paid was exponentially more, but it produced an exponentially better result. 
And so it's only when you realize how great a sinner you are, how completely undeserving of God's grace you are, when you realize that your sin is actually mutinous rebellion against the God of the universe, yet he loved you, yet he died for you, yet he redeemed you with his own blood. It is only then that you will be able to see how valuable your redemption was. And when you see how valuable your redemption was, you will long to give yourself back to the one who came for you. You see all that he did on your behalf, and your heart is filled with a longing to give yourself back to him. One commentator writes it this way. The entire set of instructions to holiness and love in verses 13 and 22, it's sourced in verse 23, you have been born again. This is the rhythm of Christians living. Having been redeemed, we are freed to live a life of glad obedience. This is our true joy. Having been loved so well, it's our delight to love in return. We are not loved because we obey. We obey because we are already loved. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the only place you find the hope that you need in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering. And so Peter has described why we obey, but he goes on to say who we obey. The gospel reveals who we obey and also who we no longer obey. In verses 14 and 18, it says, we were redeemed from the ignorance of our evil desires that was passed down from our ancestors. Verse 18, the empty way of life that was handed down from our ancestors. The Bible calls us slaves to our passions and our desires, slaves to this way of living. And so Peter is saying the who that you obey really matters, and the who you obey is no longer yourself. And it is no longer the patterns or the traditions of your ancestors. I just want to point this out. No matter how godly your parents are, no matter how godly your grandparents are, there are patterns in your life and in your family and in that tree that are not of the gospel. There are patterns in the godliest families that will lead straight to death. And so Peter is saying, you, your ancestors are not the place you look. You look to the gospel, you look to Jesus as the one. And we're so grateful for those who have gone before us, who have lived godly lives and set great examples for us. But our obedience is not to our ancestors. It's not to ourselves. It's not to our past. Our obedience is to the Lord. He says, we've been given a new birth and a new family and a new father. So we're now free to obey God, who in verse 17 is called both our father and and the judge. See, we've not just been set free to do whatever we want to do or just given a get-out-of-jail-free card. God is still the judge. He still judges everyone impartially. Sin is still sin, even if you're a child of God. But what Peter is saying is, what's really important here, what Peter's saying we need to live with, is that our obedience should be marked by reverent fear. If God was just the judge and not our Father, you would just have obedience marked by fear. Right? But because God is also our Father and the Judge, it's reverent fear. And that word translated, it's respect. A reverent fear is to, is to care about the value of the one that you are respecting. It's to be concerned about what they think. It's to be concerned about their priorities. It's to care about them and their view of you. God is saying, so we live with a reverent fear of him. 
because he's our good father and he's the judge of all things. We care what our father thinks and we want to please him. As a dad, one of the things that gives me just so much joy is when my kids try to imitate me. This past weekend, we were planning a bunch of pastas, and Emma just needed to be exactly next to me. She had her tiny little shovel and her tiny little bucket, and dirt was flinging everywhere, right? But man, she just loved being with me and being next to me. I've been trying to lose weight every morning. I weigh, and every morning, my kids run into the bathroom after me. Papa, can we weigh too? Right? And there's like 37 times where they get on the scale, right? They just want to be like me. And my love for them and their status as my kids has absolutely nothing to do with how much they imitate me, with how well they imitate me, or even if they do it at all. But man, it brings me joy. It's so much fun. I love when they want to be like me. Ephesians 5 says it this way, find out what pleases the Lord. Do it. Find out what pleases the Lord and do it. And so Peter's call is, God, he's your heavenly father. Imitate him. Please him. Find out what pleases him and do it. Live that way. Because that is when we are living for his glory, we are ultimately living for our own good. And so we please him by imitating him and obeying him. One commentator writes it this way, obedience to one's father was the most was what most characterized the father-child relationship in the Greco-Roman world. Peter is pointing out that because of their new birth, obedience should also characterize the Christian's relationship with God. And the definition of that obedience is revealed in two things, the passage says. It's revealed in his word and in his son. First, the definition of our obedience to God is revealed in his word. Throughout the passage, Peter is quoting and referring to Old Testament passages in which God is revealing who he is and what he's like in ways that directly imply response by the Israelites. Leviticus 19 is quoted in verse 14, be holy as I am holy. Chapter 2, verse 3 quotes Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Verse 24 and 25 quotes Isaiah chapter 40, the word of the Lord is the thing that stands forever. And so Peter is saying God's revealed himself in his word. He's revealed it in his word. He's revealed himself and he's revealed his gospel partially. But secondly and fully, he's revealed himself perfectly in the person and work of his son Jesus. Verse 21, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so your faith and hope are in God because of Jesus. Jesus reveals God because Jesus is God. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way, the son is the radiance of the glory, the exact representation of God's being. So if we want to know what God our Father is like, we look to Jesus. Two things the passage highlights about what Jesus reveals, what Jesus and God's word reveals. They reveal that God is holy and that he is love. And those are two ways we are called to imitate him. Holiness is about being set apart. It's about being different than the world around you. And it's a difference that's marked by a purity. It's marked by a, a wholeness. And so we imitate God by living as those who have been chosen, who have been elect, who have been set apart to be holy. And we grow in holiness by conforming our thinking and our behavior to the pattern of God's character, to being like him. The pastor says God is not just holy. He's elsewhere in scripture, holy, holy, holy. He's holy in everything that he does. And so Peter's call is be holy in all that you do. By imitating him, we're called to a pervasive 
holiness. One commentator writes this, he says, Peter's call to holiness is concerned not with religious aspects of one's life, but with one's whole way of life. The call to, is to live differently, not just to practice religion differently. That's really important to see. Our lives need to look different, and Peter says the chief way they look different is by what it looks like and how we love. Love in the passage throughout is not defined as an emotion, but it's defined as action. He says, love sincerely from your heart because you have been given a new identity that can love. He says, love sincerely from your heart, which looks like putting off malice and hatred and deceit and hypocrisy and slander. And at the root of all of those things is the love of ourselves. At the root of slander is you want someone else to look bad because you want to look good. At the root of hypocrisy is you want to look good because you want others to look bad. It is about a love of self, and Peter says you've got to get rid of all of that. You've been given a new love, a different kind of love. At the root of the love that God is talking about is a sacrificial desire for the good of others. That was prophesied about in Jesus, the servant king and was fulfilled in his coming. And so we obey our Father by imitating him, by becoming like him, and our changed way of life, it reveals the nature of our new birth. One commentator says, for Peter's obedience to the truth of the gospel is not merely intellectual assent to doctrine, but it must result in a transformation of how we actually treat other people. Because a moral transformation is absolutely central to the transformation and the redemption of Jesus. It's not the only thing, but it is central to it. And so we've looked at the why and the who we obey. We obey in light of the indicatives of the gospel, which tell us that God's our Father, that we are his kids. We look to God's word and ultimately to Jesus for the example that we're supposed to see about who we're supposed to obey and what our obedience is supposed to look like. But the last question, I just would encourage you, I think this one matters the most. The last question is how we obey. How do we obey? It's all good and well to have good motivations and a good father that you want to obey, but the problem remains, it's still really hard. You've been following Jesus for like 15 minutes. You know it's really hard to obey all the time. So the question is, when you, it feels like there's this, this battle that is constantly going on in your heart, and it feels like there's, some days it feels like that battle is raging, and some days it feels like it's not, but there is this battle that's going on, and it feels that way because there is. So the question is, how do we tip the scales in that battle? How do we actually grow in holiness? How do we learn to obey and live as God's obedient children, the the obedient children he says that we are? Spoiler alert, it has everything to do with him and not with you. It has everything to do with the gospel. But you knew that's where we were heading, didn't you? You've been here long enough to know that. Verse 1 tells us this. Peter says, with minds that are alert and sober, Set your hope on the grace that is to be revealed in Jesus' return. We've got to set our hope on Jesus, on the grace that is waiting for us to be consummated at his return, on the inheritance which is our salvation that is waiting for us, kept by him until the day of his return. That was the point of all of verses 1 through 12. You have a sure and a lasting hope that comes from God's grace. It cannot spoil. It will not fade. 
One commentator writes this, the contrast between what is transitory and what is permanent would have been highly appropriate for this beleaguered community of Christians. They were facing what gave every appearance to be a permanent, even eternal power in the Roman Empire. In such a situation, the announcement that the glitter and the pomp and the power of this Roman culture was like grass that fades when compared to with the everlasting word of God. Even the hostility that feels overwhelming becomes bearable when you know that it will end. And so Peter says we must set our minds on that hope. Literally, in the, in the translation, it says literally, gird up the loins of your mind. And you think, that was really helpful. Thanks for telling me, right? Not only do I not understand, I also have an awesome mental picture in my head, right? You're welcome for that, right? One, by the way, one, one pastor I listened to this way said that his college intramural team was called the Girded Loins. <laughs> greatest, greatest team name ever. Just, I don't know if you can get better than that, but that, unrelated, right? So, but in all seriousness, right? So when Peter, when he's saying that, he says, set your mind, he says, gird up the loins of your mind. He's bringing up this image, right? So back then they'd wear it like a tunic, right? And they'd wear this belt, kind of like a girdle, but not a girdle. It's just like a belty thing, right? And what would happen is, um, is that you think, wow, that sounds super comfortable. I wish I could wear that all the time. And you're like, yeah, it would be comfortable. But it's not really like sweatpants. It's not really like athleisure wear, right? You're not moving quickly in a robe, just like ask any woman who's ever worn a dress. Like it's not, you're not moving fast in that kind of attire, right? And so what would happen is, is when they need to get ready to run or move, is that they'd take, they'd take their, their, their rope and they'd pull it up and they'd tuck it in. They'd wrap it around their legs. They'd wrap it around and they'd tuck it in their belt. And this idea of, of girding up your loins, right, is this idea of wrapping, wrapping this around. And Peter is saying, Peter is saying this, you need to, when he's saying that, set, that, set your minds, gird up the loins of your mind with the hope that you have in Christ. He's saying, take all of the truths about who God is, all of what you now know about who you are and all that he's done in, for you. And he says, wrap that up around you. Wrap it up around you. Tuck it into your belt. Wrap it up. Keep it close to you so that you're ready to run. That phrase, that girding up your loins, it was almost always associated with running into battle. So there was a battle at hand, and so the soldiers would wrap up their cloak around them, and they would tuck it in so that they'd be ready to run into battle. And Peter says, you need those truths wrapped around you. You need the truths about who God is. You need the truths about all that he has done. You need that wrapped around you. You need it tucked in around you so that you can run into the battle for your heart and for your obedience with him. When Pastor Huffley points out, he says, when Peter here is talking about our minds, he's not talking about your brain. When the Bible talks about the mind, it's talking about like the controlling center of ourselves. And that includes our thoughts, but it's also our emotions and our attitudes. And so our minds, Peter is saying, are to be alert and to be sober and to be ready. So he says, pay attention. 
Be aware of what is influencing your controlling center. Pay attention to what might be getting in the way of your ability to run into battle. Pay attention to what might be getting in the way of your ability to run into holiness. What is distracting you from Jesus? What do you turn to for comfort and happiness that is not him? What are you turning to to numb the pain that you feel in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, that's not him? Peter says your minds need to be alert and they need to be sober. And he's saying, yes, don't be drunk, because obvious, right? But he's saying your minds need to be alert and you need to be sober. He says, there's just one thing you need to be intoxicated with. It's Jesus and his gospel. And when you're intoxicated with him and with nothing else, your mind will be set on the hope that you need to to not just survive trial, but to thrive and grow in the midst of it. When our minds are set on the hope that comes from him, we want more of him. I don't know if you've ever been watching a cooking show and then like you suddenly have like a craving for whatever they're cooking. Usually that happens for pizza with me. Maybe this is a pizza ad that's on TV, and I'm like, pizza, I love pizza, I want that! And it gets brought up in my mind, and I'm like, oh, that's so good, I could just eat pizza every day, I would never get tired of it. And Peter's saying, Jesus, is the best pizza ever, right? That's not what he's saying, right? But he's saying, is when you see something, when you're intoxicated with, you want more of it. So Peter says, set your mind on that. Watch the pizza ads, so you want pizza. He's saying, if you want more of Jesus, set your eyes on him. Look at him, treasure him, enjoy him. And what it fuels in you is a hunger for more of him. That's exactly what he's talking about in uh, the end of the passage in 2 and 3 where he says, the way that we grow up is by craving pure spiritual milk. Elsewhere in scripture, milk is kind of referred to like inferior, like you should be having meat and not milk, but that's not the, the tone or the connotation here. What's in, in view here is the, is the pureness of it. And Peter says, you're new babies. And what you need is pure milk. What you need is the gospel. What you need is Jesus. That's why I always keep coming back to the gospel every week. That's why what I set before you is Jesus and his gospel whenever we are in God's word because he is the thing that satisfies our needs. Babies love pure milk. It's exactly what they need. It fills them up. It satisfies them. But if your wife lets you give your baby some pizza or if you sneak them a bite when she is not looking, what you will find is that it's not good for them. They don't, not only do they not like it, it does not fill them up. It does not satisfy them. It's not what they need. And Peter says, what you need, like spiritual babies, what you need is pure milk. What you need is Jesus and his gospel. And I just want to, just as a spoiler alert, um, we're never referred to in the Bible as God's adult kids. We're always referred to as his kids. Because what we're always going to need is the pure gospel. What we're always going to need is him. He is the meat and the milk. He's everything that we need. Many commentators take the idea of this pure spiritual milk to simply mean God's word. And I'm not disagreeing with that, but what I am saying is that you can read the Bible all you want, but if you, in reading it, you miss Jesus and you miss the gospel, it is of no use to you. 
We've got to get to Jesus and the gospel on every page. God's word reveals the pure milk that we need. It's the gospel that satisfies and fills us up. This week, uh, my mom called me, and uh, she listens to all my sermons. Hey, mom. Um, She said the most encouraging thing to me this week She said, after almost a year of listening to your sermons, I'm, what I'm finding is not just that I'm learning more. She says, what I'm finding is that I love Jesus more. And she says, I'm finding that I love him more, and I want to obey him, and I want people to know him And that is the most encouraging thing she could possibly have said to me because that's what I want for you. That's what I want the goal of the teaching and the preaching of God's word to be is that you would love Jesus more and that you would love to give yourself back to him, that you would long to obey him because you see how wonderful he is and that in loving him and in cherishing him, you would long for others to love and to cherish him as well. And so what I set before you every week what you need, what I need, what I set before us every week is Jesus and his gospel. It's the good news about who he is and all that he's done which actually changes our lives. In a few moments we're going to take communion. Communion's a a picture, it's a reminder for us about the gospel, and the bread is a reminder of Jesus' body which was broken for us as he lived the life that we couldn't live, and and the, um, the juice is a reminder of his blood which was shed for us as he died the death that we should have died, and Um, Places like 1 Corinthians 11 and others make clear that taking communion does not affect your status or standing with God in any way. Instead, it's a remembering of him. Instead, it's an opportunity to remember the gospel, to set our minds on the indicatives of the gospel, about who God is and who we now are because of all that he has done. And so as you take communion, gird up the loins of your mind. Set your hope on the one in whom you are remembering. Let your remembrance of him fuel your obedience and your love for him. And the bread and the juice, they're in the back. And you just go whenever you're ready during our singing and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice. And as we sing, as we worship, the invitation is to remember the gospel together in song. And if you've put your trust in Jesus, if the hope that you have is in the grace that's waiting for you when he returns, then whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. You don't need to be a member at this church. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if you've not yet done that, then I just encourage you to hold off on taking communion. Jesus is what you need. The bread and the juice, they are remembering of him. Let's pray and celebrate. God, we're so grateful for you. We're so grateful for all that you've done to make us right with you. And God, we long that you would, uh, you would fill us with motivation in light of the gospel to obey. God, it's so, it feels so easy to get caught up in the midst of our sin. It feels so easy to get caught up in our failures. And God, I pray that you would, by the gospel, be reminding us that we already are your obedient children and that in light of that incredibly good news, You'd be filling our hearts with everything that we need 
to love and cherish and live for you. We pray all these things in your good name. Amen.